Let's turn to John chapter 9, verse 1. If you could ask God any question, what would you ask him? You ever had that thought? I've heard people say things like, man, when I die and I get to heaven, the one thing I am dying to ask God is, what would that be? I mean, it might be some kind of light, trivial thing for you, like, what in the world is a platypus anyway? Or why mosquitoes? We, we wonder these things. But in all seriousness, it may be for you some question that is rubbing a blister on your soul right now. And blisters can turn into calluses. Questions that result from suffering, from trials, from relational betrayal, from some past wound. Maybe there's a question that immediately jumps into your mind that you have wrestled with and agonized over. In January 2012, my wife Barbara and I went to the 20-week ultrasound for our first pregnancy. And it was at that ultrasound that we found out we were expecting twins, and we we were elated. Uh, However, over subsequent ultrasounds, we were told that our boys uh, had some kind of genetic abnormalities. That was all they really knew at that point. Those words, genetic abnormalities, those were devastating words. All kinds of dreams just instantly began to fade. I remember I was teaching here at Sioux Falls Christian at the time. I remember walking through the gym one day after lunch, seeing a bunch of preschoolers running around thinking, my boys will never do that. And we had no idea what was in store for us, but these hopes for parenthood began to turn into fears. Disability, disease, cancer, chronic pain, unanswered medical questions. These are difficult realities of life in a fallen world. Just consider, for example, that in the United States, as many as uh, three out of four pregnancies where they suspect the child may have Down syndrome are terminated in abortion. Three out of four That says something about how our culture thinks about people with disability. Unwanted. Don't want that inconvenience. That's not what I planned for when I wanted to become a parent. The number's over 90% in Europe and as high as nearly 100% in Iceland and Denmark where people have declared we have eradicated Down syndrome. They didn't eradicate anything. They just kill everyone with Down syndrome before they can be born. I mean, the the point is loud and clear, isn't it? Physical, whatever we call it, abnormalities, anomalies, disorders, they they raise these uncomfortable questions for us about the goodness of God, about human sin, about the meaning of suffering. And those questions, they, they arise in those who personally have disabilities, medical conditions, and various physical challenges. They come up in family members and friends around them, questions like, is God really good? Is God punishing me in some way? Has God abandoned me? Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 say, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you 
For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. But does Psalm 139, 13, and 14 apply to little, little babies whose joints are contractured, whose, whose muscles don't work, whose eyes aren't developing correctly, who, who have an extra chromosome? Are all people fearfully and wonderfully made? Or are some people less wonderfully formed? Does God make mistakes when he knits some together? The day that Barbara and I found out our boys showed signs of genetic abnormalities, we, we went home and we wept. I remember vividly standing in our kitchen at our island just weeping together. And as we wept, we, we just turned to the only source that we have for authoritative, reliable, inerrant, infallible revelation. And we know that God has not seen fit to answer every possible question our minds can come up with. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. He hasn't told us everything, but the things that are revealed, he has revealed to us and to our children so that we can know him and and walk in his ways. And so we turn to his word, and on that day we read these words. John 9, verses 1 through 7. And they were precious to us then, and they're precious to me now. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking. You have not left us in the dark. You have spoken to us that we might know you. And you have revealed to us great and glorious things that we would not, we could not know unless you spoke to us. Our finite minds could not discern these answers to these gut-wrenching questions, but you have spoken. And so we receive your word and we trust it. And I pray that you would get stuff done in our hearts by causing us to behold your glory and delight in your glory and make us the kind of people who love the display of your work on earth, people who treasure you. Do that through your word now in us, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to equip you this morning with 
with a lens, a, a God-prescribed lens. That's what Scripture is for us. It comes to us from God. It's a God-prescribed lens that will give you clarity and divine perspective, not, not only on disability, but I believe more broadly on physical suffering. And I know that there's a wide range of issues and questions and conditions just represented in this small group of people here. A perspective from God for living in a fallen world where we experience these kinds of challenges. That's what we need. We're, we're finite creatures. We just have restricted, limited, finite understandings. We need revelation from God. So perhaps disability or cancer or chronic pain or food allergies or some other physical affliction is already a part of your story, your family's story. Maybe it affects your ability to have children or your ability to sleep through the night. It, it affects your life in some way, some way maybe you didn't anticipate or dream of for yourself. Or maybe it's possible this is in your future at some point. We don't know what the future holds, but I feel this deep responsibility as a pastor, a shepherd of this flock, to prepare the members of Emmaus Road Church to suffer well. I see that in Paul's words to the church in Thessalonica when he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you, we kept on telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know for this reason when I could bear it no longer I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain I don't want my labor to be in vain I don't want anybody to be tempted when they experience hardship in life to be tempted to turn away from the faith I want you to know and be equipped with God's word how to think about hard things. And so my aim in this message is to convince you, to encourage you, to treasure the display of the glory of God above your physical comfort and your health. And to convince you to expect, to anticipate, to, to look for the display of God's goodness in and through physical suffering. I think that's what God is doing in John 9. This is a story about a blind man receiving his physical sight. And ultimately, it's about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight, which we'll explore more next week. But God, I believe, intends to use this text to open the eyes of your heart, to cause you to be a disciple who looks expectantly for and recognizes the glory of God on display in and through suffering. Look at verse 1. It says, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. He saw a man blind from birth. The thing about so many physical abnormalities is that they stand out as different from the norm. And so people notice these things. That's been one of the challenges for us with our son Caleb over the years. I remember one time my wife just saying, I just don't want to even want to go out in public anymore because I can't take the stares from people. People see this. People notice. But Jesus isn't staring awkwardly at this man. He sees him and takes notice. Just think about that contrast. This blind, blind man has never seen a thing in his life. And Jesus 
sees him, notices him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says in John 1, 14, and we have seen his glory, and according to John 9, 1, he has seen our suffering. We have seen his glory. He took on flesh and he walked among us and he has seen our suffering. Jesus' disciples also noticed the man who was born blind. And they asked Jesus one of those deep questions that we all long to ask God. Why? What's, what's the cause? What's the explanation for this? Who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind, verse 2? In, in their minds, those are the only two logical explanations. Either this man sinned or his parents sinned. Either way, they see some causal relationship between individual sin and individual suffering. And certainly at a broad, like 30,000 foot view, their logic makes sense. Sin does lead to the introduction of suffering and ultimately death in the world. The curse of sin is death. No sin, no death. No sin, no suffering. That, that's true on a broad level. When Adam rebelled against God as the representative head of the human race, he introduced all of humanity into life under the curse of sin. Separation from God. Death. So that's where sin and suffering comes from. That's true, but the disciples make at least two errors in their logic here. First, the first fallacy that they commit is assuming that what's true in general about the human race and sin in general and suffering in general necessarily applies directly in individual, every individual case. We can't always look at a case of individual suffering and then tie it back to some specific particular sin in that person's life. Scripture does not give us a formula for doing that. And it'd be a dangerous thing if we spent our lives running around trying to tell everyone, oh, you're suffering in this way? Well, let's find out what you did wrong, how you're to blame for that. That's not how it works. Scripture is clear that individual physical suffering can result as a consequence of sin. I mean, we see that... Um, in Numbers 12, when Miriam rebels against Moses and is immediately struck with leprosy. It's a clear correlation there. Think about the story in Acts chapter uh, 12, when Agrippa refuses to give glory to God, Herod Agrippa, and he falls down dead, and he's eaten by worms. It's a clear correlation there. So certainly God can do that, but Scripture does not call us to go to everyone who's suffering and point out some particular specific sin in their lives that caused that. Sometimes it's obvious, and most of the time, most of our suffering is just in this category of we don't know why. Scripture's clear and encouraging that not all illness or physical suffering is a direct result of individual personal sin. Galatians uh, 4.13 Paul tells the church in Galatia, the very reason he, he stopped there and preached the gospel is because he was held up by a physical affliction, by an illness. So he recognizes the sovereign hand of God, the proclamation of the gospel, the spread, the planting of churches tied to a physical illness. He's not saying because of some, some sin in my life. He's saying, I was ill and providentially I stopped there and preached the gospel to you and you heard it and you believed and you're saved. And God was at work in that. If you've read the book of Job, you know that most of the book is Job's friends. They are poor comforters and they spend most of the book trying to convince Job 
Job, admit it, you sinned, that's why you're suffering like this. And Job maintains his innocence all throughout, and at the very end in Job 42, God rebukes the friends. It's, God says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, but my servant Job has. So not all illness is directly the result of some individual sin. What's true of the whole is not necessarily true of the, the parts we can say suffering is in the world because of Adam's sin, but we can't look at Joe and say he's suffering X because he did this and that on such and such a date. Second fallacy that the disciples commit here is the classic false dichotomy. They assume it's an either or, and the answer is neither. The real answer is something else entirely, something unexpected and something unexpectedly hopeful and redemptive. The disciples' question was focused on the cause. There, there are two ways you can ask why. You can ask why what caused it, but you can also ask why to what end, to what purpose. And they're asking, what caused this in the past? And Jesus gives them an answer looking the other direction. Not at the cause, but at the purpose. Where is this going? What is it for? Look at verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the word that translates the Greek word hina, which means in order that or to the end that. It points to a purpose. It points to design. Jesus is saying this is the purpose of his blindness. He's a man who was born blind, so it's been years and years and years of blindness, and it was all for a purpose. Jesus is saying this congenital blindness was not caused by some specific sin in him or his parents, but it was purposed by God. The question is not where does it come from? The question is where is it going? What does it lead to? This is disability by divine design. God, yes, sovereignly knitted this man together in his mother's womb. He was fearfully and wonderfully made. God did not make a mistake when he made this man whose eyes didn't work. Blindness and all, he was wonderfully made for a glorious and good purpose, namely, that the works of God would be displayed in him. The works of God displayed, seen, shown forth publicly, visibly manifested, exhibited. I mean, the very opposite of blindness. He has this affliction where he can't see so that the works of God might be seen, not just by him, but by many in him. God means to manifest the works of God in this man. Why does God allow disability and suffering in his wisdom, which is, it far surpasses any of our understanding, in order to display the works of God. Consider John 11, verse 4. We'll get to this chapter down the road. The story of Lazarus and his illness and his death and his resurrection. When, when news came to Jesus that Lazarus was terminally ill, listen to what Jesus says in John 11, verse 4. When he heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, although Lazarus does die. 
it is, not, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This seems to be the way Jesus thinks. This illness is for the glory of God. This blindness is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of God. And together those passages build this deep, comforting theology of illness and disability that leads us to eagerly expect, to look for, with anticipation, the display of the glory of God in the weak and the least and the hurting and the broken, the suffering. Now, suggesting that God is not just allowing disability, but that he's purposing it for his glory, that is, I, I understand, for many, more than, more than you're willing to grant. But just consider Exodus 4.11. There was a time in my life when my, my theology was off, and I, I felt this need to get God off the hook for things like this. Like God needed to be defended against anyone who would suggest he had any part in this. And then I realized, through reading the Bible, God is not trying to get himself off the hook. Listen to what God himself says. Exodus 4.11, he says to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God himself seems to have no problem saying, I do that. I make you, every one of you knit you together. I do that. So then the question is, well, when he does it, does he do it randomly, haphazardly, recklessly, inattentively? No, never. Everything that God does, he does purposefully. He does all that he does in line with, consistent with his character. That means everything he does is wise. It's good. It's loving. It's faithful. It's true. It's righteous. It's holy. Everything that God does is consistent with his entire character, which means he does it with purpose. He is the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And, and that, that changes everything. Maybe you've heard that classic formulation, the problem of evil. You know, premise one, if God is good and all-powerful, there would be no meaningless suffering in the world, right? Because if he was good, he wouldn't want it to happen. If he was powerful, he would be strong enough to stop it from happening. Premise two, there is meaningless suffering in the world. I mean, just look around at the world. We can't make any sense of it. We can't think of a reason for it. There is meaningless suffering. Therefore, conclusion there is no God, or if there is a God, he's certainly not strong or he's not good. And Jesus just flips that whole argument and shows us that actually it goes more like this. If God is good and powerful, there would be no meaningless suffering in the world. That's true. Premise two, God is good and powerful. Therefore, conclusion, there is no meaningless suffering in the world. It's an entirely different conclusion when you start with the premise, God is good. God is powerful. And so even though I can't see, I can't think of, I can't identify in my own finite understanding, I know by faith 
in God and His Word that there is no meaningless suffering. That's the redemptive message of John 9. No disability is meaningless. No suffering is pointless. No illness is random. It is God's good purpose to display His glorious works in us, in you, in your body, the flesh and blood that He gave you. And we might think, is that, is that really fair? I mean, think about this man, born blind. How many years did he spend? Later in the text, we see that he was at least old enough to give testimony in court, so he's at least 13 years old. That's long enough to make us wonder, is that fair? He's never seen the sunrise. He's never seen his mother's face. He's never seen anything. In fact, he, it was not just speculation to think that his life has been hard. He's a beggar when Jesus passes him. That's all he can do to contribute financially. He's just sitting there begging on the side of the road. So life has been hard for him. We can speculate that life has been hard for his parents. If you're a parent and you've seen a child suffer at all, you know how agonizing that is. Would God really do that? Would he subject a person to all that pain and difficulty just so his works could be displayed in that person's life? Yes. Because... As Scripture teaches us, seeing and enjoying the glory of God in and through disability is better than having no disabilities and never seeing God's glory. Seeing the glory of God is better than seeing anything else at all. And so in His goodness, God manifests His power and His might when He begins to make all things new beginning with this blind man and his eyesight. But this is, I grant, this is conditional comfort. It is conditional. This is not just immediately comforting to everyone. It is only comforting. It's only encouraging if you trust that God is good. If you don't, if you reject that in unbelief and rebellion, there'll be no comfort in this. You don't think that God is good. It's only comforting if you treasure the glory of God, which is why my desire in this message is to encourage you and invite you to treasure the display of the glory of God above anything else, all of your, your physical comfort and, and health and well-being. If you treasure God and you treasure His works that manifest His glory, then this will sustain you. It will. I know that personally. It's comforted me. If you don't trust Him, it won't. One more question I want to ask about this. Can, can we really take the story of the man born blind in John 9 and apply it more broadly to disability and suffering and illness and disease today? Is that fair? Or does this just apply to this blind man because he was healed of his blindness right there? Immediate healing. Obviously, the works of God were displayed in his life, but are the works of God to be displayed in lives today? And again, I believe the answer is yes, for several reasons. First, listen to what Jesus says in verses 4 and 5. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus is talking here not about physical sight, but about spiritual illumination, which means the ultimate work of God that Jesus displays is not the restoring of a blind man's eyesight although that does display the works of God. 
He's not just restoring physical eyesight so this man can see the sun. The ultimate work of God is to cause hearts to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. That's the true light that Jesus is giving to the world, and you can be sure that God means to display that life and that light in people today. So we know that, at least. Here's another encouragement that I find in Scripture. God's purpose to display His works in you and in your illness or your diagnosis or your disability is not limited. The display of His work is not limited to the physical healing of that condition. There are other ways that God manifests His work according to Scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, when Paul says, A thorn was given me in my flesh, in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. So three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul is saying, the, the works of God are being displayed in my life even though I'm not immediately healed of this. Because the works of God can be displayed through the outpouring of powerful grace that sustains us through suffering. So that's another way that the works of God are displayed in our physical weaknesses. But what about the healing? What about the healing? We are continuationists at Emmaus Road Church. We believe the gifts of the Spirit continue. We believe that God can and does heal people still. And yet, we acknowledge that not everyone we pray for is healed every time we pray. What do we do with that? How do we live with that tension? Well, Andrew Wilson, in his book, The Life We Never Expected, he, he has helped me tremendously. He gives four categories for thinking about healing. Let me, let me offer these to you quickly. First category of God's healing work is evident in the totally ordinary, routine, everyday way that our bodies, by God's design, just go on sustaining and repairing themselves. You ever think about that? It is crazy. The immune system, blood clotting, you, you get scabs instead of bleeding out. What a gift. Scar tissue builds up. Cells repair themselves and regenerate. And all of this is the work of God. That is healing and it's happening in your body right now and God designed it. So that's the work of God on display in your life. That's one category of healing. The other one, the, the one that gets our attention as especially miraculous is when we pray for someone and they are healed in answer to that prayer. I want to see that. I want to see more of that. Andrew Wilson tells about a, a woman uh, he's from the UK. They had a, a conference. They prayed for this woman who had damaged her hip and her pelvis and her spine when she slipped on a wet floor at work and she had been in a wheelchair for, I think, like six years. She was healed when they prayed for her and she called the government disability office to say, don't send any more checks, I'm, I'm healed. And the person said, I don't have a button in the computer for miracle, so we have to keep sending you the check. <laughs> so God does that. He can and he does heal in that way, but not always. The third category of healing is when God heals, when God heals through means that make a little more sense to us. We usually call that medicine. God uses EMTs who get there in time 
to resuscitate or stop the bleeding. God uses doctors and he uses nurses and surgeons and he uses robotic surgery technology. And God uses those means to heal. And it doesn't make it any less a work of God that it's through means. Jesus used means when he healed this blind man. He spit in the dirt and made mud and wiped it on his eyes and told him to go wash it off. Why? I just think about this. The God of heaven making mud out of the dust of earth. God heals through means. And it's his doing. And here's the fourth category of healing. The resurrection. One day, death will be no more. Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That means the question is not whether God's works are going to be displayed in your broken body. The question is when. It's not if It's when and how. Is he going to do it now through a doctor and a prescription? Is he going to do it now through a prayer of a believing brother or sister? Is he going to do it in the resurrection? He's going to do it. He's going to display his works in you. He is going to display his glory for your joy. And so I tell my son Caleb, God is going to heal you. He's going to give you a new body. So I I have no problem praying with him. For a new body. God, heal his muscles. Heal his joints. Heal him and give him a new body. And I know that prayer is going to be answered. God could answer it today. He may answer it in the resurrection. He's going to give him a new body. And when I think about the display of the works of God in Caleb's life, I mean, I think I'm going to be raised from the dead one day. And Paul calls that, you know, our our glorious body. So I anticipate the difference between my earthly body and my glorious body is going to be pretty great. But when I think about the difference between Caleb's physical body and Caleb's resurrected body, he's never walked. His muscles don't work. He can't swallow. He can't breathe. And so when he does those things for the first time in a glorious body, the gap there will be a display of the works of God that will get praise and glory for God forever. He's going to do it. It's not if, it's just when and how. And so this text points us to hope in and delight ourselves in the glory of God. And it gives us, it gives you one more assurance. Really the ultimate assurance. That God's purpose in your suffering will ever be to display his works in you. In verse 4, Jesus mentions that he's working there's this urgency, this, this quickness, this nowness about it. We must work now while it's day because the night is coming. The night he's talking about is his impending death when the light of the world will be snuffed out for the sins of the world. And if there was ever an innocent sufferer, it was only this man. Why is he hanging on the tree? Why is he suffering? Who sinned that he should suffer like this? Not him. It wasn't his sin that put him there. It was our sin. And yet he suffered and died in our place to display the works of God. 
He is, in his death on the cross, the ultimate display of the works of God, the glory of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God to this fallen world. And it's because of his death that you can carry this confidence every day of your earthly life that if you are in Christ through faith, then your suffering, your pain is never punishment for your sin. Jesus already suffered the punishment the wrath of God. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the end. There's not a single drop of wrath left for you. So you don't ever have to be plagued by that question, is this God punishing me? Is this God abandoning me? No, Jesus was abandoned. He was punished. He was cut off for you so that you can be sure he's never punishing you in Christ. He disciplines us for our good and he displays his works for his glory. Because that's true, then God the Father can remain perfectly righteous as he displays his glory, his works in you. Let's pray. Father, we confess that The real challenge, the root of the issue, the battle takes place in our own hearts and minds. The fight of faith, the battle against unbelief, the unbelieving responses of our hearts to your word. We question your goodness, we question your wisdom and your sovereign plan. But in humility, we confess we never question you from a place of understanding. It's not that we know better than you. It's not that we are more wise than you are. We only ever question you from a place of unbelief. And so we turn away from that in repentance and pray, Father, forgive us. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to trust you. Would you open our eyes to see your glory, and to treasure your glory. Make us expectant people, eager people who are looking for the works of God to be manifested among us, knowing that you could do that today in answer to a prayer. You could do that today through a doctor's care. You will do that for sure on the last day when you defeat the last enemy. Death is overcome and we are raised from the grave. We trust you. We profess that trust, that faith in you, that reliance upon you. We pray, oh God, manifest your works for Jesus' sake on earth, in and through our lives, that our joy in you might be full. Amen.